Hey, welcome back to the FDIC podcast, a place where we talk about our banks and our money, and in our last episode, our history. I'm Brian Sullivan at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and today we pick up where we left off in our last episode. Art Merton joined us in part one of a two-part conversation about all those big moments in our banking history since the Great Depression and since the creation of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. These are great turning points that set the stage for how we bank today. As the deputy to the FDIC chairman for financial stability, Art has been in the room where it happened for a number of big moments over the past 35 years since he first walked into the FDIC as an economist. In part one, Art took us through the history from the Great Depression up through the so-called SNL crisis in the 1980s, when savings and loans collapsed and taxpayers had to pony up north of $100 billion to bail out the insurance fund that was set up to protect those depositors. In part two of our conversation, Art picks up the story from there. So the savings and loans, because of the high interest rates, were basically insolvent, and the losses grew over the years and required taxpayer funding to protect depositors. And I should make it clear that no insured depositor lost a penny during that period. But of course, there was taxpayer outrage at having to pay for these losses. Well, of course. And as I said, FISLIC and uh, the regulator of the savings and loans was abolished. Um, right. So. But through it all, the FDIC and the insurance fund that was originally created to support deposits in commercial banks. How did that fare during this this time? It had its, its own problems. It, it had its crisis, too, and, and I, I can walk you through that and maybe start in, in the early 80s, uh, 1984, when one of the largest, the seventh largest bank in the country, Con Continental Illinois, uh, experienced uh, severe difficulties. And that required essentially a bailout um, uh, that protected not just insured depositors, but all depositors and even other creditors of, of, of the bank and of, of the bank holding company. And by bailout, what do you mean? I mean, it, it, beyond the insurance fund? Exactly, exactly. We, the FDIC, uh, provided protection and, and covered uh, the uninsured depositors, as well as other creditors of the bank. Mm. And that was um, controversial because up until that point in the pr prior few years, smaller banks had been failing. And when they failed, only uninsured depositors were protected. Uninsured depositors lost money. Other creditors lost money. Continental Illinois comes along, seventh largest bank. Everyone is protected. So that disparate treatment is obvious to people and uh, creates a double standard and that's where the term too big to fail uh, entered mm. the, the lexicon. Exactly. Right. Well, but the insurance fund that FDIC manages survives to this day. So it right. did. But let's walk through how what it experienced in the 80s. So after Continental, what we experienced, the country experienced was a series of rolling regional recessions. So first in the mid-80s, you had uh, problems in the agricultural belt in the Midwest, and a number of banks failed there. And then the problems moved to the Southwest, the energy belt, particularly in Texas, um, and then up to the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. And I, 
I might spend a minute on Texas. Um, Texas at that time in the early 80s to mid 80s was booming because of uh, uh, high oil prices. And in fact, the large banks in Texas were now rivals to the what were known as the money center banks in New York. Um, you've heard the names Chase, uh, yeah. Manufacturers Hanover, Chemical and so forth, City and others. And the Texas banks uh, began to rival them in terms of financial might. Um, but uh, that came crashing to a halt in the, in the mid 80s. Um, and Indeed, seven of the 10 largest banks in Texas failed as a result of that. Mm. The, two of the other largest uh, had to be acquired by out-of-state acquirers, um, banks from out-of-state. And so Texas experienced severe problems, which uh, created large losses for the deposit insurance fund. The FDIC started with just over $15 billion entering that crisis, and within the span of two or three years from 87 uh, to 89, we had lost uh, more than two-thirds of that, I'd say. Sounds like the 80s were pretty tumultuous. We came out of that period of time. Did we enter a new period of calm? We did, but we had a little more trouble to go through first. Oh, because dear. after Texas, as I said, the problems moved up uh, to New England. So we thought the problems were over when Texas ended, and we still had a positive balance in the insurance fund. Um, and I, I should say, I remember in 1988, we would have delegations um, from various states come to the FDIC to have lunch with the chairman and, and sit with staff. Um, and I remember a table, there was a delegation from one of the New England states, and they were complaining about what was going on in Texas and how much money it was costing the deposit insurance fund that they had paid their premiums into. And they said, you know, that Texas, the way they're banking down there, that's like gambling. This it's would never happen in New England. Never. That's right. And so fast forward a few years. Famous last words. Exactly. Um, on one weekend, we closed five of the largest banks in that state. Mm. And that the New England experience, again, created... Additional losses for the FDIC, and in 1991, we, we uh, reported the FDIC fund as insolvent. Was that the first time? First time the FDIC fund ever had. So, so again, something needed to be done. What was that something? Congress passed a law, the FDIC Improvement Act, uh, known as FDICIA. And what it did, it did several things to uh, address the problems. So what, what FDICIA did, what the new legislation did, was give the FDIC board not only the ability but the mandate to make sure the deposit insurance fund reached a target uh, as a percentage of the, the amount of deposits that it insures. Like a capital ratio type? Exactly. Right. And so what the FDIC board did and was required to do by FDICIA was to significantly raise premiums on banks in order to get the fund back up to that target. And that's, so that's what we did in the early, early 90s. Mm -hmm. Now, um, that, that reform legislation also did a number of other things in, in, in terms of addressing the problems. One was created something called the lease cost test, which basically limited uh, the FDIC board's ability to protect anyone other than insured depositors. It made it more difficult, took away some of the discretion that the FDIC board had to protect um, uh, depositors beyond the insured depositors. It seems odd that anybody who's uninsured would be ultimately insured by an insurance fund that they didn't participate in. That's right. But what Chairman Seidman argued, and that's why it was called the least cost test, was that there might be some cases where 
having another bank acquire it and protecting a small amount of uninsured depositors could actually preserve franchise value and actually be less costly to the fund. The 80s, early 90s, seemed pretty tumultuous with these rolling regional recessions and the effect that that had on the banks in those areas, and of course the depositors, and ultimately the deposit insurance fund. But then we enter this new period of Mm -hmm. relative calm and stability, and, and it seems to take us, you know, through the 90s and into the 2000s, kind of a golden age Right. That's right. Uh, The deposit insurance fund recovered. The industry returned to health and indeed had record earnings, a decade or more of very high earnings. Um, And there were changes in the industry. There was consolidation of the industry. So the geographic restrictions on banking were relaxed. And there was a great deal of consolidation throughout the industry. There was also uh, a relaxation of powers. So Bank companies could have powers just beyond the the traditional banking ones. There was also what people have called financial engineering, the creation of new products such as derivatives and other instruments to help manage risk, help corporations and others manage risk. Or so they thought. Or so they thought. The regulators put in place what are known as risk-based capital rules to try to tailor the amount of capital that banks have to hold to the risks that the banks are taking. Mm -hmm. Um, The subprime lending, which had long been more the province of what are called finance companies, entered the banking system. And, of course, there was a lot of residential mortgage lending. Oh, my goodness. uh, That eventually... As you know, right. Well, I recall problems. I recall well the collapse of the housing market and the foreclosure crisis that uh, that ensued, and just how scared folks were that things could have been so much worse. You know, because now we're hitting two thousand and eight, right? Mm-hmm. That's the year everybody points to. You know, people lost homes and and everything. Businesses went out of business, and and we lost a lot of banks. What lessons did we learn through all that? Right. Well, before we get to the lessons, there. Are probably worth talking about some of the things we had to do that we had not done before. Mm. So when you think of that period, I think of um, sort of two parts. One is what people refer to as the global financial crisis. And as you said, that was 2008 was the epitome of that, particularly the second half of that. But, you know, the year started early on with um, Bear Stearns in, in March having to be basically acquired by J.P. Morgan Chase with some support from, from the government. And then you get to the fall. Again, the too-big-to-fail thing. Could be an example of that. Right. Um, and then um, you get to late summer, early fall. You have uh, the government taking over the Fannie and Freddie, the government-sponsored enterprises, GSEs. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the bailout of AIG. You have the money market mutual funds that I referred to got into trouble, and the Treasury had to put in place a guarantee of money market mutual funds, which was unprecedented and, you know, created actually some issues for the the FDIC because they now, there was another product that had a full government guarantee that could have competed with bank deposits. And so we had to work with Treasury to sort of tailor their program so that it wouldn't have that impact. Mm. So that was what was going on in outside the banking system. Um, but then within the banking system, you had problems. You had IndyMac failing in, in July of 2008, the most expensive bank failure by far in the FDIC's history. Um, and then in, in September, you have the failure of Washington Mutual, 
um, the largest uh, failure uh, in terms of asset size that we ever had. Um, and then we had problems at even larger banks, Wachovia. Um, and we had to put together a rescue package over the weekend uh, in, in late September. And um, that was the first time that the FDIC invoked what I referred to earlier, that systemic risk exception that, that Congress had given us uh, back in Fiducia. We and that's not, the exception that says if things get really bad, then you can forget everything. Exactly, exactly. And that was the first time we had used it uh, in the 17 years that we, you know, we had been given that authority. Mm. So that was the first time. Uh, but then later we also had to uh, uh, invoke that um, for Citibank and also for Bank of America in the in the fall of 2008. Right. This exception, everybody had to say yes to that. That's that's right. Okay. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, perhaps the bo- most notable use of that exception was what was called the Temporary Liquidity Guarantee Program, or TLGP. And this was one of the programs that came out of Columbus Day weekend of 2008 when Treasury called the a number of the agencies together to try to find a solution to the seizing up of credit markets. And so one of the things that came out of this that weekend was the FDIC, for the first time ever, uh, guaranteeing bank debt, debt that banks issued into the marketplace. So if they issued, for example, bonds Not into just the market, people's deposits. No, no. This was uh, investor bonds that investors purchased would have a guarantee by the FDIC. And it, again, that was that was unprecedented. That so, was a temporary guarantee, though, right? It was. It was. Um, and along with that, we also put in place what was known as the Transaction Account Guarantee Program, where we provided unlimited deposit insurance for non-interest-bearing transaction accounts. So think of very large corporate accounts that could be used for payroll, uh, to pay the payrolls and so forth. So those became fully guaranteed. The idea was that you didn't want them uh, being at risk and possibly uh, uh, having to cut off payrolls if, if the bank were to fail. So, Art, as we were as we we're coming through this crisis in 2008 and 2009, it, it seems like the financial system was stabilizing somewhat, but the next shoe to drop was the effect it had on our banks at the time. What happened to the banking industry after the financial sector went into crisis? Right. Um, yes. As, as I mentioned, first, in IndyMac failed in the middle of 2008, and that was you know the most expensive. But then uh, in 2000, starting in late 2008 and for the next several years, Community banks and smaller regional banks failed. We had to resolve over 500 mm. um, banks during that period. And um, once again, it put pressures on the deposit insurance fund. So we had started the crisis uh, with over just over $50 billion in the deposit insurance fund. And by the end of 2010, we had a negative balance of $20 billion. So once again, the deposit insurance fund uh went negative, and we had to take measures to shore up our resources. We began this two-part podcast. I, I said, you know, you, you had seen it all in your time here at the FDIC. Of course, that's, that's nonsense. I mean, here we are experiencing something we've never experienced today in this pandemic and all the economic consequences that, that come, come with it. But as, as we sort of wind up 
uh, our conversation. Um, after all you've seen over the years and all these stories that you've told us, what observations can you share with those of us who are looking for some perspective at a time like this? Well, maybe I'll go back to some of the lessons we hope we've learned. Um, when I look back to the experience of the 1980s, I think it's fair to say that uh, people did at that time did not see the problems that could develop in insured depository institutions, the, the banks and the savings and loans. We, I don't think they contemplated the, the problems that they, they may face. I think they were slow to respond to it. Um, and, you know, eventually they responded to it in some ways better than others, um, but, but they got through it. And, and again, no insured depositors lost a penny. Um, but they learned that um, I think one of the lessons coming from there was that a deposit insurance system needed to have adequate resources to avoid having to go to the taxpayer. So that there were measures put in place to do that. Um, you go to 2008, and we entered that, and I think um, what we uh, didn't see was the way risk had built up outside the banking sector in other parts of the financial system and the impact that that might have on the banking system. And again, we, we didn't fully see that coming um, and we had to react to that. We had to respond to that, again, in some ways better than others, but at the end of the day, I think fairly effectively. Um, but what we learned is that we have to look for risk, not just within that sector, but in other places. Right. And it's I, an ecosystem. Absolutely, right. and, and I think that's relevant today because you know, the, the financial industry is changing, uh, technology is changing, um, you know, there are cyber threats. Um, we've changed the way the financial system works and in terms of, for example, um, going back to derivatives, it used to be a lot of bilateral arrangements between banks um, where they would uh, have these instruments as transactions between one another, sort of like a bowl of spaghetti. One of the things that the reform did was to call for central clearing, which means it's more like a hub and spoke where uh, banks deal with a central party to to have those transactions, which is a way of a good way of mitigating the risks uh, in there. But it also creates centers of of the where the risk might build up, and and many of us have been working to to try to keep an eye on how that. How that is working. It never stops, does it? I mean, no. the, we're always learning, and we're always learning from what maybe we should have learned before, you that's, know? That's is, right. is that that's the right. nature of, of the, the beast? I think it is. I think it is. And, you know, hopefully, uh, I think we have a lot of tools that we didn't have before. Uh, we may not completely see what's coming, but I, I expect that we'll be able to respond in the future, and I'm very confident that whatever comes next will again, be able to say uh, no insured depositor lost a penny. Right, because that's been true all along. Maybe that's the one constant we can end on here. Nobody's ever lost their money when they put it into a bank that's in right. an insured institution. That's right. correct. Art Merton, thank you so much for taking us down memory lane. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure.